Hi and welcome to another episode of From the Lighthouse and today I'm flying solo, no Michelle today, um, but I do have um, two international guests so this is a bit of an experiment for us. Um, I've got Dr Kirsten Mills who does teach at um, the University, Macquarie University with us but who is currently um, in the UK and I also have another special guest which is Dr Lauren Schwartz and um, he teaches literary studies and English education at uh, York University in Toronto, Canada. So this is a very, very um, international podcast. So hi, hi Kirsten, hi Lauren. Hello. Hi. hi. And so we're here today to talk about something that unites the three of us across oceans <laughs> and that is Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Yes. Woohoo! Um, Woo! Yes, I know. I've been waiting for this opportunity. So um, my first question to you guys um, is, what is the appeal of Buffy to you? Uh, maybe Kirsten, you can start. Um, the appeal of Buffy. I watched it when it first came out. I was in high school and it really spoke to me, um, I think, as that target audience of the teenager, particularly a teenage girl, um, interested in, I don't know, like, so that that process of discovering identity, but particularly in society um, with, I don't know, girl, girls have so much pressure on them to look a certain way and, you know, to there's a stereotype of being weak or vulnerable, particularly at that age when boys start to physically overtake girls in strength and speed and things like that. And Buffy really spoke to me as a strong character that I really heavily identified with on those terms. Yeah, I think that Kirsten and I are of a similar age, and that's certainly <laughs> yeah. um, what what drew me to the show. Uh, Lauren, how about you? I so I'm not of a similar age. I think I was much older when I started watching. <laughs> I think it was probably my first year of my PhD when I started watching it, and I think for me it was simply the quality of the storytelling that got me into the show. It just he just was able to tell such a great story and use metaphor in such a way. I mean, we never knew if high school was hell or if the high school was really in hell, you know, and the characters were so well drawn out and the action was always so beautifully plotted. It took it took exactly a season to tell a story and the suspense rose at just the right times. And it, I, I really think it was simply that quality that kept me watching for all those seasons. Yeah, I mean, that's such a beautiful kind of metaphor, isn't it? That the Hellmouth is like literally underneath the high school. Right? Yeah. <laughs> um, which, you know, when you're in high school, that feels like it's true. <laughs> I remember the, the episode that really got me into the show was um, Prophecy Girl, which is the season finale in season one. I remember, um, you know, liking the show before then, but all of a sudden that, that episode kind of turned me from a kind of casual fan into an obsessive. <laughs> I think for me it was there was a similar episode when her boyfriend when Angel loses his soul and how many people in high school feel that their partner doesn't have a soul and yet here we had a character who really <laughs> had a partner without a soul. Um, I think it, it was it, I mean it's it's such a beautiful example of like using horror or fantasy mm -hmm. I suppose to kind of make literal what we all feel. Right, that's so true. Yeah. Yeah, I think so too. I, 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 um, I've always been drawn to fantasy anyway. Um, so when I heard that a show about vampires and magic and things was coming, I was so excited. So I think I was already ready, like I was primed to enjoy it. But um, using it in the way they do, it, it's so clever, I think. And I think that's what got, that's what made it a cult following as opposed to just a generic, you know, horror or vampire story. Absolutely. So that was really well said. 
Yeah, I think that was was really well said too, Kirsten. And I think that um, calling it Buffy the Vampire Slayer was a bit of a bold move because it sounds so silly. Yeah, exactly. But that's something the show did. The show did that so well, though, too, because they they would they would have like the most beautiful person on the show was an evil hell god at some point. You know, they were able to yeah. like, take your expectations and turn them right on their head so effectively. I think that that's clear from the first episode, isn't it? Because, you know, you see that, that the first scene in the first episode is, you know, a boy and a girl, um, you know, breaking into the school when you think, okay, this is going to go badly for the girl because it looks like the, the stereotypical kind of setup for a horror yeah. movie. Yeah. And then the girl turns out to be the vampire. Right. <laughs> so they, it's all about overturning expectations. Isn't Definitely. It? And I think um, Joss Whedon comments on that in one of his um, commentaries on that episode, I think. He says that the mission statement of the show is nothing is as it seems. Um, and that was kind of the inspiration for the whole show was trying to turn those sort of 1980s slasher film cliches of um, ditzy, over-sexualized blonde girls ending up being victims in dark alleys. Um, mm. He wanted to, yeah, turn that on its head. And I think that's that's something that Buffy obviously embodies from her name to her interest mm. in boys and fashion and cheerleading and you know her quotes like I may be dead but I'm still pretty like (laughs) (laughs) right (laughs) we're supposed to like she never kind of loses that I mean the series gets darker and she matures as she goes along but I think she always enjoys her whole her whole point in life is to have a normal life I mean, initially it's to get through high school. It's to have a normal boyfriend. It's to, you know, pass this maths test at the weekend, which is almost more horrifying for her than the imminent apocalypse that they're dealing with. (laughs) And yet they're also, they're also facing these kind of existential crises that maybe because I was older when I watched it, I was always kind of, it wasn't just about high school to me. They're all, the characters are always wondering what's the right thing to do here and how do I be a human being and still do this and how do I act you know he, he really places them in this kind of existential world that they have to make the meanings for themselves yeah yeah I think that's true and he, and that's I think why Prophecy Girl was the kind of right. um, the episode that really turned me into, into such a fan because she has to come to grips in that episode with the fact that she's going to die and she has right. to she has to act but she knows that acting is going to cause her death and yet she still acts. And I just thought, you know, such a kind of brave act walking into what you know is going to be your kind of inevitable fate. But they don't play her... The way that Buffy's represented in that episode is not that she's like this superhuman figure who, who can meet her death, you know, bravely. Right. She's scared. So there's a lovely mixture there of the human and and the superhero, I suppose. The show never lost that in all the, in all the years. The characters always stayed so human and so approachable. Yeah, that's right. And I think that the strength of characterization is certainly something that, that still speaks to me. I've been re-watching Buffy in preparation for this podcast. I only got up <laughs> to uh, halfway through season three. Um, but the characterization just strikes me as so brilliant. I mean, Cordelia. Yeah. <laughs> Going back and, and re-watching the early episodes, Cordelia is such a beautiful character because she's supposed to be this mean girl. Um, and yet, you know, right from the beginning, we see that that's not all that she is. Yeah, I think that's one of the things I like so much about it is that, I mean, that's part of its mission statement. Again, it plays with expectations. It usually turns them on their head. Um, But in doing so, it kind of, it shows the roundedness of all of these characters, that they have depth, they have reason. I don't think there are many or any main characters that you don't believe 
you know, that That's you right. don't sort of understand the, the story and the reason behind what they're doing, um, unless we're not quite supposed to, like when Dawn shows up suddenly and we've, we think, hang on, Buffy doesn't have a sister, things like that. Like we're supposed to, it's working with our understanding of a rounded yeah. human with a backstory to play, you know, to play us off against that for effect. And even those confusing moments, like when Dawn shows up, we're sharing in the confusion of the characters. So it's mm. it's a way of kind of, it's a third dimension of characterization almost. Definitely. I agree. You know, the only character that doesn't work for me going back is Xander. Really? Well, he doesn't work I for you? Xander. <laughs> no, I, I love Xander as a teenager, but he's so awful. He's so judgmental of Buffy. Mm. He's so judgmental of everybody. He's the one character who, with a bit of his time and space, uh, as a teenager, I absolutely adored him. I thought he was fantastic. Um, but uh, going back as an, an adult, I'm like, stop slut-shaming. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. He just has to have the last word all the time. <laughs> Yeah. He's very judgmental of Buffy. He did get that way. He lectures Buffy a few times. Yes. I, d- I don't appreciate it as an adult. <laughs> I think he's, his Snoopy like dance him... has worn off on you, has it? Snoopy dance yeah, is no Snoopy longer dance. working for you. Yeah. <laughs> no, it doesn't really work for me. I'm sorry. He's like the he's like the quintessential nice guy, the one that like keeps telling you how nice he is. <laughs> but in fact... He's not that not, nice. He's not nice. No. I think, I think that's a character that kind of he kind of grew because it seemed like at the beginning he and Willow might get together and then he and Cordelia got together and then I'm not sure he was part of the plan the way he went through but by the end I felt kind of empathetic to him especially in the last couple of episodes after he loses his eye he's much more empathetic <laughs> got, got yeah taught, he does get better as he ages yeah he has to lose an eye in order to be taught a lesson <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think um with with him, he he was interesting, and I, I like the way they did play with his. He's pretty much the only one that doesn't actually have much power, right? Um, That's right. And he just he just talks a lot, um, but in the end, they sort of say one of his powers is that he sees everything, which is why he loses that eye, um, because he's always there. He observes, right. but I like the way that um, the show plays with that. Do you remember that episode um, where it's essentially split between? Um, Xander's story as he actually steps up and saves the day, saves the school from being burnt down by these zombies Um, and no one knows, no one believes him because it's Xander, what what the hell could he possibly do and they've left him out of saving the world again from yet another apocalypse because he's just Xander That's That's the Zeppo isn't it? Yeah, yeah The episode, the Zeppo It always strikes me too when I think about episodes like that how formally kind of experimental Buffy was. You know, they Mm. did a lot of kind of different things with the form of the television show. Like we had that episode where it sidelined. There was an apocalypse going on in the background of that episode that we don't get to see. And there was a big, remember there's a big kind of Buffy angel scene that we, we only kind of see because Xander runs into the room, intercepts it and then runs out. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. They were playing with perception. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it, it strikes me as quite early in kind of the history of prestige TV, I suppose, to be doing those kinds of formal experimentation. And I mean, like things like the the musical episode is another good example of that. The silent episode. Yeah. Yeah. I think that one, obviously that one's one of the most recognized um, and critically acclaimed of the episodes. Um, and they were saying the actors routinely mention that as um, one that was the hardest to film because they couldn't rely on dialogue. They, was, they found it really hard to act emotion without being able to speak it. Um, 
which kind of ties into the sort of themes of that episode as well. But, mm. but I like, I love like the way they played formally. Um, it, it sort of, it links in with the way that they just, like the, the genre busting that, that Joss Whedon has also said, genre busting is at the heart of the show. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just so playful, isn't it? Like nothing, nothing ever stays the way you expect for very long. Right. And we never really knew what to expect. And yet, at the same time, it could bring its... I'm thinking of the second last episode in the, the Frankenstein season with Adam and how such a big part of it was that the friends were all having a fight. So even though there was all this other stuff going on, and it wasn't even... It was the climax, but it wasn't the season finale. But the real crux of that was that, that Buffy and Willow and Xander were having a fight in spite of the fact that there was an apocalypse about to happen, the big problem was that the three of them were not getting along. And I remember mm. there was a scene where two of the minor characters locked themselves in the bathroom just to let them have a fight. And it did, that just, to me, it showed such, you know, integrity <laughs> to to the uh, the characterization because all of us understood, we've all had, we've all kind of stepped out of other people's story to let them go at each other when they needed to. And we were all watching to see the fight that the three of them had. Only when they got that together could they move on with the storyline and kind of stop this this creature from taking over everything. So, yeah, yeah. It, it, it it did both of those things so well and simultaneously. Am I remembering correctly in that scene? Is it Spike that sees through it and he sets them straight? I think I'm, he'd been part of sure. sowing the seeds of discord. Yeah, he had, hadn't he? I'm trying to remember who who it is. Someone steps up. I thought it was. I thought it was him. Who was in because the? Because I don't remember, but I do think that I do think that he um, he sets. I do think that there is an element to that, um, Kirsten, from memory, that he does kind of um, let them know that that they had been keeping secrets from each other and and hadn't been communicating. And he's the the great truth teller in that se- in yeah. that um, particular season, isn't he? Because he's got nothing. He's got a chip in his head. He can't attack them, so he just kind of stirs things up for them. Isn't he funny? Oh, he's um, that. That was one of my. I love that they kept bringing Spike back, you know, from a character that was meant to just be a, you know, an on-the-spot sort of villain. Um, They saw that charisma and that potential in him and kept bringing him back, and he ends up being one of the key players. Um, And I just think his character just gets better and better. Oh, totally. Um, As as well as Stark. They explore some really dark themes through Spike because they can. Um, but, But what I love about him is just he's unabashedly... He's so brazen he just says it like it is he doesn't because Mm -hmm. he's evil which we consistently forget because he's so funny and he seems so kind and loving but he's evil and so he says these things that are so (laughs) spiteful and so like petty but it's that's the source of the humor um i'm thinking of um particularly when um Oh, Tara, Tara, the Tara. I'm thinking of the same scene. As soon as you were saying that, I thought I know exactly what she's thinking of. (laughs) Right when they when she's worried, she's a demon, and he he sees what's going on. Um, Punches her in the face, finds out that it hurts him, which is great because it means she's not a demon. Because otherwise, it wouldn't hurt him. Um, You know, so he saves the day, but by doing something awful at the same time mm. and then giving kudos to the bad guy for being so twisted and evil right. <laughs> while and at the same what, time helping remember, out these people that he doesn't like the family was about to leave her for it and every all of the good guys stood up for them and said you know you'll have to go through me you'll have to go through me and Spike says you don't have to go through me I don't really care what happened yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, he did the right delightfully thing delightfully immoral yeah <laughs> 
But but you know what scene I love of, of Spike, and I, it's in that episode um, in which he recounts to Buffy um, how he's killed the two previous Slayers. Um, sorry, it's in that episode. Yes. Um, Fool for Love, and um, he at the end Buffy finds out that her mother is quite sick, um, and she's sitting on the stairs crying, and he's got a gun, and he's about to kill her. And um, he sees her crying, and he sits down and awkwardly kind of pats her on the shoulder. And it's such a beautiful yeah. scene. Like, oh, will I kill her? No, I'll kind of pat her on the shoulder and sit here and let her cry. I mean, he's such a great character. It's he's amazing. so conflicted, isn't he? I think he's such a he's such a lovely character for exploring that conflict, um, like that he's got raging inside him. Um, in fact, I found that because he doesn't have a soul. It was that's why he was so compelling because he acted like he did. Um right. he acted like he really cared and he he did love. Um he loved Buffy, but he was also driven by this desire to kill her. <laughs> There's that line that's in the what made him more interesting ahead, than Angel. Sorry. I I was just gonna say I think that's what made him more interesting than Angel, because Angel yeah. there was, you know, there was good angel and then there was Angelus, yeah. who was bad angel, evil angel. And there was no kind of um spacing between at least on Buffy they they complicate things on Angel a bit more but on Buffy there was you know good and bad and it was kind of very straightforward who he was at any one time mm-hmm. whereas with Spike there was this you know huge continuum of his behavior he could be completely amoral he could be he could be completely evil and yet he could also be capable of great acts of kindness and love and generosity so there was even even though he didn't have a soul so there, he was just a much more kind of complex character, which explains why I always shipped Buffy Spike, yeah. not Buffy Angel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my, my, I've, I've Sorry, changed. Sorry, I interrupted. Oh, really? Sorry, you've changed. I've, I've changed in my opinions. I go back and forth, and I think it reflects my different stages of life. Like at one point, I, th- oh. I think everyone initially watching gets to season four and dislikes Riley as a potential love interest. Oh, Riley is terrible. Really? Yeah, because he just seems boring in comparison to Angel. Um, oh, I see, yeah. But then I went through, yeah, I went through a stage where I thought, no, Buffy, he's the healthy option. Go with the steady right. guy. <laughs> right. But of course, you know, then you eventually go back and you're like, no, no, you need a bit more excitement in life. You know, Angel's fine, <laughs> Spike's fine, pick a vampire, whatever. <laughs> but Spike was also know. too much yeah. excitement sometimes. You know, there was that horrible scene I'm remembering in the bathroom where he almost yeah. rapes her. That, that's more excitement yeah. than the average Slayer wants, I think. Well, definitely. And I think that they're bringing that back because he's, he's evil. Like, I think they're right. reminding us there, don't get so complacent. You know, we're, we're not retelling another angel story. This guy doesn't have a soul. You know, I actually think that that scene was a bit of a, a, a kind of reminder to the audience as much as anything else. So I think you're spot on there, Kirsten, because I think that, and I was guilty of this as a teenage viewer, of romanticising Buffy Spike mm. because I thought, you know, oh, he's, he's reforming out of, you know, his love for her and he hasn't ever soul, but he's, you know, he's, he's changing his behaviour. And that was a real kind of, like, reminder, no, this is actually... A man with no soul. But I think no, it's even more complicated demon. than that. It's a it's a demon, but that's a mistake that a lot of human guys make too, right? There's so much yeah. talk mm. about no means no. In Canada, we, we talk about no means no, and consent is mm-hmm. very important. So it, there, even that was a little bit ambiguous. Was it because he, he was some kind of a monster without a soul, or was he just really in love with her and completely consumed by his own desire? I'm not exactly sure what, what caused that to happen. I, I, yeah, that's, I think a, it's, that's such a great point. Yeah, I, I think it's um, it's dealing with all of that. Obviously, like he 
you can see in his his face he's driven by that sort of demonic impulse to you know attack in whatever way that happens to be but he's also he's confusing that that sort of impulse right. with passion and with love which um and with love. you know it, yeah and it's just and and love as ownership and love as control right. and as a consuming force um which is really dangerous territory and particularly in um, you know, teenagers moving into adulthood, experiencing young adulthood and, and more relationships and things like that. It's really familiar territory for a lot of viewers, I think. Absolutely. I wish that only happened to people without a soul because then we'd never have that kind of violence against women. Yeah. But it, it's a very real problem. And I think it did a very beautiful job of showing how frightening and how terrible that line is when it's crossed. Definitely. Particularly... Um, with so much, uh, you know, this whole culture of victim blaming, particularly online these days, um, to have someone like Buffy, someone so normally powerful, to have her power stripped away, and it just showed how truly vulnerable she was in that situation. And I think it makes us realise even more the impossibility in those situations of fighting back, of doing what people say you should do when they're sitting in their armchairs discussing how you should have gotten out of that situation yourself. Right. Yeah, and she got hurt too. She got pretty significant. If I'm yeah. remembering the scene correctly, she actually she wasn't a slayer anymore. She I think she banged herself on the tub as she was trying to get away from him, and she was really injured mm. from it. Mm, definitely, it, it was really close call. It was. Yeah, and I think it continues that theme of, of um, like, the supernatural being used as a way to explore, like, real human problems, as yeah. it always been has been used on Buffy, you know. Um, his, his kind of demonness is um, not really as important as the fact that, yes, as, as Lauren rightly points out, he's a man who has a problem with consent and who has not, um, you know, actually doesn't have consent for what he has done. Right. And that's such a human problem <laughs> yeah definitely i like how you um, i was oh, wondering ahead, if you might sorry i was going to just ask if you if you might comment on the feminism of the show well i sorry, just a pause while we wait for each other to speak <laughs> um i i think um again returning to things joss whedon has actually said um he didn't initially uh, set out to do that he also wanted to create a popular tv show um mm -hmm. but at the same time whether he meant to or not wrapped up in that initial idea of turning those cliches on their head is a feminist statement um mm -hmm. and then i think he realized what he was working with and it became really important by the end of the show i think to modern viewers like contemporary viewers now looking back um it can be difficult for some people to see women presented as beautiful, you know, conventionally attractive, dressed um, in, you know, fashionable clothing that sexualizes them somehow. Um, and it can be really confronting to think of that as being feminist because there's this tendency to think that if it's going to be feminist, it has to be anti-sexual, you know, the women aren't allowed to look right. like that, you know, but I, I think we've got to remember the context that this is in and also it's about teenagers. It's about teenagers who are in that context. And if you know, Buffy needs to embrace those certain stereotypes in order to turn them on their heads. Right. Um, really well put. Yeah, I, I just... Thank you. <laughs> I just... Mm -hmm. I don't know. I think um, it's... 
yeah, for me, that's sort of where the feminism starts. It's it's in turning those simple stereotypes on their heads. But then we get that evolution throughout the series as Buffy grows, as her power grows, as her understanding of the whole system grows. She also outgrows um, the initial patriarchal sort of system that sets her up, as in this all yes. white English male watchers council that dictates, you know, um, the slayers and things. We actually get this sort of sense of the history way back into um, like thousands of years ago when the first slayer was created. We get that backstory and we really understand what Buffy's now re- has been rebelling against the whole time, but she now understands it as an actual system where men control women as opposed to just her being a rebellious teenager acting out against her watcher you know and so by the end when i think sorry to keep rambling on about this but when they when they reach the end of the series and they have willow take that power from all the potential and, and give that power to the potential slayers what they're doing there is is returning the power to the women the, the watchers mean nothing by that point it's about not only just one powerful woman it's about all powerful women do you remember in that the last episode though they it's inter- everything I agree with everything you said you, you brought some things to mind so the last episode Nathan the the first evil has become this this priest and there was a shot I watched that one to prepare for the podcast and there was kind of a, a moment where he calls her a bitch remember and that was so mm. shocking to me and it kind of brought me back to the fact that this really is a very feminist kind of text because here we have a priest who's like he's this strong man and he's using this horrible word to to call this young girl who we care about and it's it's a very kind of masculine dominated and she of course has to take care he's the first evil so she takes care of that but i also think the show that's that's what i thought of when you were talking so beautifully a minute Mm. ago but i also thought of how it's kind of feminism in the the right first generation of it's a very inclusive show it's it's not just feminism for women it's for everybody who's on the outside and everybody who's abject yeah to the, the dominant narrative you know we have it's very sympathetic to gay people even before it was fashionable mm. for that to happen we've got main characters who uh, who are queer and they were kind of being themselves and it was fine and other kinds of people who are left on the margins and left outside i think it, it's it's a very kind of uh approachable feminism for everybody i yeah i completely agree and like in that um last scene when they evoke the power of the slayers right the fact that everyone is involved in that you've got like even spike has a crucial role to play there um you know and willow is not a slayer but she's challenged um channeling the power and you see her sort of make that choice to you know because magic has consumed her before that point it's evil she won't touch it coco Sorry, my dog is just... Mine's active too, don't worry. Stop it. <laughs> she she's, gets excited when I talk about Slayers. Um, oh, of course, I understand. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I think in that final scene, everyone has their part to play. And that's the, the last season is very much about awakening everyone's important... Like everyone is a piece of the puzzle. Everyone has yep. their role to play and their significance in the world. If only you could just find it and, and work together to sort of you know achieve goals i guess whatever they may be nobody's left out which i think is i think that idea that nobody is left out or nobody's on the margin or nobody doesn't have that part to play or that story to tell i think that's that's feminism at its best in a way Mm. Mm, definitely i just wanted to pick up too on what lauren was saying about um willow and tara because i think it's um 
it's easy to kind of forget how significant that was the right. portrayal of a lesbian relationship on television. That was the first lesbian kiss that had ever been aired on American network television. Was it? And um, I didn't yeah, know that either. It was. I. I oh, wow. Yeah. No. I, I. I read that recently, and um, just showing a a healthy kind of functional. Um, queer relationship was a huge breakthrough for television at the time, which actually leads me to, to think about the controversy that happened when um, when Tara's killed off, because... That was lot, horrible. Um, a lot of... Yeah, a lot of viewers <laughs> were really upset about that, because, you know, this had been a kind of um, really positive representation of a, of, a, of a gay relationship, and then... Um, the one of the part, one of the the characters is killed off, and so that that caused a lot of disquiet in the in the Buffy kind of fandom community. Yeah, but I think like nobody, no relationships really survive by the end. Um, and I think That's the right. fact that <laughs> like the fact that 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 moment needed to be utterly soul destroying for Willow's story. It was mm-hmm. really about Willow's arc. There, they needed a, a catalyst for her to to go fully dark. Um, and turn murderous, you know, and nothing but destroying what had been so beautiful and pure and light-filled before that. I mean, most of the scenes, I think, prior to that point, um, with Willow and Tara, they're filmed in the sunlight, and there's they've got these beautiful frolicking dresses on, and they're out in the grass, yeah. and it's really pretty. And I think that's meant to sort of build us up, wow, this is such a pure, gorgeous thing, and then that happens. And I think it's that impact. So... If anything, it's not it's not your conventional... They, they took what they had been representing as the most positive, beautiful relationship, and that's the only one they could have really done it to, I think. So perhaps it's part of what the show thing, did. <laughs> yeah. But the show was so ruthless. I mean, if, if the plot called on a character to die, the character died. It didn't matter how beloved the character was or how much the fans would have complained. I mean, it, Joss Whedon really wasn't afraid to break all of our hearts to make his point stronger. And I think that's why that point was so powerful and why it made such an important kind of impact towards not only the feminism and inclusion and, and everybody watching that story in particular, but for the show itself. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it didn't it didn't pull punches at all because I mean, Joss Whedon kills off Buffy at the end of season five, and I mean, you would you knew watching it that she would be back eventually because the show is still going to be Buffy the Vampire Slayer. But he does kill her off, and he does um, represent a world in which Buffy is dead, and we know that she's going to come back, and we know that that's going to be a kind of issue. But he doesn't pull any punches. He he lets the worst thing happen because in life. You know, we don't have kind of nice, neat ending. That's yeah, great. and I think the the series does that more, it more and more as the um, series goes on. The the the, um, the villains become less supernatural in a way. Like we get um, Andrew and mm. <laughs> what's his name? Yeah. Um, Jonathan, Warren. Jonathan Jonathan and Andrew Jonathan as these and very Warren. human villains. Yeah. And that um, that scene when Tara is killed, that's not supernatural. Um, that's a very real ugly irreversible death um, it was with a gun same... she was shot yeah exactly it's, and especially in america it's such a real like source of anguish and and death and i think the same thing with um with joyce's death buffy's mum oh that was that, horrible that episode the body yeah it was about it's so inconceivable in a show where they're constantly dealing with things that come back from the dead um to have someone die of something as as mundane as an aneurysm and to have that that realization that, that that whole episode is about of that first day 
when you realize they're not coming back, that this is real, you know? And I think it was very powerful. Yeah. And I think the series does that as it goes on. It's, it stops being, um, sort of so symbolic and it starts dealing with death as a real thing, a real hard hitting, impacting thing that happens to them and then they just have to deal with and move on. And I think, yeah, Tara's is one of the most, um, important of those. I wanted to go back to that idea about um, the the nerd characters, I suppose, because um, that's another example, as you say, Kirsten, that the show does become kind of less supernatural as it goes along. Um, and what's interesting about those characters is that what, where their villainy lies is the fact that they've created these kind of female sex slave robot things. <laughs> yeah. And that they're using, yeah, and that they're using women as, as kind of as sexual servants because they feel like they haven't, because they're, you know, nerds, um, they haven't been very successful with women. So it's, it's run-of-the-mill kind of misogyny that actually is at the heart of what's going on in that season. I think the show never loses that, though, too. It's al- There's always a little bit of showing how misogyny, when it's left to run amok, can really be damaging to human life. Yeah, I agree. And I think they they just sort of fit in with the the kind of villains that that underestimate Buffy or denigrate her because she's female. Um you know, leading uh, back to what um Lauren was saying earlier about the the preacher at the you know, the final season, which is he's just one of the most horribly misogynistic um horrible ultra conservative sort of yeah they've got the religious connotations and everything um it's just so much going on there and i think these guys just kind of fit into that pattern a little bit but they also do it in a way that shows the appeal i think because jonathan in in school was shown to be quite a nice sensitive sort of person like um you know we, we get to know him a little bit and then suddenly he emerges later as this super villain and it's almost like their grab for power meant achieving a position via misogyny you know you know and that's quite a common thing i think that sort of um lad culture um right. where you bond with with other men by denigrating women but even uh, there they're they're a little bit more complex because if i'm rem- i didn't watch too much of that but i think there's a homoerotic element happening there's three of them at first and mm. one one of mm. the minor nerds is is kind of there's a suggestion that he might kind of have some feelings that are not just kind of like I want to be your fr-. he wants to be more than friends with the the one that shot uh, Tara I can't remember his name but he Warren Warren yeah so he he no, that's uh, right, yeah. so I think John was it not Jonathan the other one the um, Andrew Andrew he's kind of yeah yeah Andrew seems to really like him very much and so. There's there's the lad culture and there's misogyny and there's a buddy issue there, but there's also more than that. They're more complex. And in the end, they're not the villain mm. of that season. That season ends with like Willow being the supervillain too. Yeah. And that leads us to that brilliant episode in which in which Andrew kind of um <laughs> narrates the show and as a like a masterpiece theater. That was wonderful. <laughs> Talking about the vampires. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it, it's, so, it's so brilliant because, you know, it, it takes something so serious as this, you know, misogynist lad culture that we've been talking about and then transitions him into this kind of pathetic character who's, you know, isolated, but he's also very funny. Um, I thought it was just the way that they could kind of transition characters was just brilliant. Really good. 
Was this the episode where um, he's filming? He's making a little documentary? Yes. yes. Yeah, and that, yes. that was amazing because um, we sort of open through his lens, really, and we sort of, right. s- like, the actual reality of what we're seeing, Buffy's sort of slow-mo running with her hair flicking and then it just it zips <laughs> back to real life and she goes, turn that camera off, you know, and gets annoyed with him. Um, and that's one of the things, I don't know if you feel the same, but I felt in that season we saw a lot of Buffy monologuing, a lot of mm-hmm. speeches that sounded the same, and I think um, the writers were catching on to the fact that there was probably a little too much of that going on. So in that in that scene, they they respond to their fans, I think. They say, yeah, we, we see you, we hear you. Um, so, Andrew, there's a bit where Buffy's doing a classic <laughs> speech and he starts filming her and then he, he pans back to him and he says – Buffy tends to talk for a while. Let's go and look at something else for a bit. And he keeps panning back and going, nope, she's still going. And then, (laughs) so I I like the way, I think that's one of the hallmarks of the show as well. Um, Just the way it jokes with its audience. Um, The Mm. the jokes never seem at at our expense or even necessarily at the character's expense because the characters are making the jokes themselves. It's a very self-aware show. Well, that's that's visible in the in the musical episode, isn't it? Because there's that line um, about Dawn's in trouble. It must be Tuesday because <laughs> the show aired on a Tuesday. Yeah. Um, so it's 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 very and and you know it's playing on the fact that you know how many episodes that particular season were predicated on Dawn being in trouble. We have to go save yeah. her. the line. The line <laughs> I remember it, it, of self awareness is there's she's ex- Buffy's explaining the Hellmouth to someone and she said something like, "Oh, it tends to blow in October and April, and those are sweeps weeks in uh, in America when they kind of." <laughs> ramp up the drama on television because that's when they're watching to see who's watching what so I I thought like the show knows that (laughs) we're watching it and it's loving us back somehow yeah yeah (laughs) I have to tell you about my brief moment of fandom in Buffy fandom by the way please I was I was a super fan and I caused a bit of a I caused a bit of a crisis online (laughs) because I went to a I went to a Buffy convention and I met the actor who played Xander Uh oh and this was at the this was before the end of season six, Ed, and I said to him, what's happening with Spike? Because I was obsessed with Spike. And um, he said to me, well, Spike's getting an extension. And so being the good little girl that I was, I went and reported that to my favorite Buffy fandom site online. I think it was like a Yahoo group. This was like the late 90s. Oh, no. Um, and yeah, and it became this huge thing, like, what is his extension? And what does that mean? And who is this Steph? from Sydney and I became Stephen halfway That was you? Um, That was me. Yeah. And it turned out that they were referring, the the extension was Spike's soul, which he gets at the end of season six, beginning of season seven. But I I did cause a controversy in Buffy fandom and that no matter what I ever achieve in my life, that will be my proudest moment. What was the convention like? What was the convention like? Um, I don't remember much of it, to be honest. I remember being very, very obsessed with Buffy. I don't remember much of the convention, except that there are a lot of people, like a lot of people. And I was really surprised because I tended to um, talk to people about Buffy online and not in real life. And so I was amazed that there were people in real life who watched the show. And it's not, I, I was always a little bit nervous to tell people that I was so faithful to the show as much as I was because people were like, you're watching, you're watching that? Are you, and it, it still maintained a kind of sub, the vampire is always this kind of subculture thing that, you know, the cool kids, it, it's, it's kind of a reflection of Buffy. The cool kids aren't watching Buffy and yet everybody was. Yeah, that's a, it was very much, that's sort of 
almost the definition initially I think it's changed a bit with Netflix and things like that but initially that's kind of what cult things were weren't they they were a bit underground a little bit hush hush and you didn't quite know how many other people out there were enjoying it but you find out years later that it was extremely dedicated um Mm -hmm. you know and so I think that's what's that's what one of the things that I found so I mean heartening as well as interesting is that 20 years later I still enjoy it just as much as I did back then, if not more. I think on rewatching, you know, you pick up so much more, and I think that's the it's same one for of those everyone. special shows. Yeah, it, a lot of shows when I come back to them fifteen years later and I look, they're not. I think, why did I watch that so much? But Buffy is just as good as it was the first time. Yeah, I think you get more out of it too. That the more like as your life changes and we mature. I mean, going back to the first time I was watching it, I was you know thirteen or fourteen or whatever, and now looking you know you get different things out of it because you reflect on it from a different perspective and it relates to you in a different way right that's right and i'm certainly always surprised like i i have taught puffy which has been one of the most exciting things I've ever done. and um, <laughs> wow. i'm surprised by how much my students actually are into it because you know they obviously they weren't even alive i think or they were you know being born when the show was when the show was airing and yet they seem to come to to me with some kind of knowledge of the show. Wow! Um, and they they're aware of the show and they're really into the show. And even those who who um, are watching it for the first time because I made them, um, <laughs> they often will send me you know like really hysterical emails saying, "Oh my god, I had to go watch all 144 episodes or whatever there are yeah. of the show because I loved it so much, even though I was only supposed to watch three. Um, <laughs> so it's something that sort of continues. I mean. Even though it's on one level kind of very much of the 90s in its kind of girl power kind of ethos, it also speaks across, I think, in a nice way. And certainly I've been re-watching the show for this podcast um, as well as because I really just wanted an excuse to rewatch it. <laughs> and as you say, Kirsten, you get so many different things out of it as an adult coming back to it and watching it. Um, I'm, I'm loving it just as much as I did when I was a teenager. I feel the need to go online and find like, <laughs> a, like a new Buffy site. <laughs> I don't know what the sites are these days or how to find them. I'm too old for that now, but <laughs> I feel like I need to talk about it. You're going to finish the season, we're, aren't we're, you? I mean, we've done the podcast yeah, now, I'm, but I'm you're gonna still going to finish, gonna finish whole, it. <laughs> I'm going to finish the whole seven series. <laughs> we're, we're quickly running out of time, but I wanted to ask you guys before we go... Um, favorite episode or episode wow. that stands out for you? Oh, don't do this to me. That's a hard. I think I've been thinking about question. it. No, I was thinking about it today because I had a feeling you were going to ask that question. I think the most. Yeah. Pow- I mean, <laughs> there's so many powerful episodes, and so many episodes do different things. But I think I'll go back to what you were saying before. The the episode that really turned me into a Buffy fan, I think, was Becoming Part One. And where mm. where Angel had lost his soul and Jennifer Callender had died that season. I loved she was an English teacher or something and that was I wanted to be an English teacher so much, so I was into that. I think I was an English teacher by the time she died, actually. But <laughs> you know, Buffy has to make that horrible choice. It was, she it's that one moment where Angel gets his soul back and she sees that he has his soul back, but she has to kill him to stop, you know, hell on earth from coming into being and so she she just makes the horrible choice and that, that episode was so well done and so beautifully put together that that was the episode for me that kind of made me the Buffy fan. So that that's the answer I'll deposit, even though there's so many episodes I loved. <laughs> Um, have you thought about it, Kirsten? Yeah, I, I'm the kind of person that just, I, I don't have favourites, really. It's really hard for me <laughs> to choose. Um, 
I I say in general I tend to go with the earlier episodes. Um, I think they have more of that classic formula. They're a bit more simple yeah. in some ways. Um, there's a Even lot more humor, one. I find. Yeah. Um, People don't like it so much. The critics are like, just ignore season one and start with season two. Oh, really? Like, yeah, See, I season one was just so, some great so enjoyably simple in its premise. Um, I thought so too. That, that's when we started out with it. And it, even that the ending of that first episode um, is, is, I think, my favorite. When the, the teenagers are having, you know, stop the vampires, save the world again, they're suddenly just talking about all the ways they're going to fail high school. Um, <laughs> and, and it just turns around and Giles says, the earth is doomed. And I think that's how it finishes <laughs> that episode. Um, we haven't spoken about Giles much, but I think um, he's oh, got to yeah. be one of my favourite characters. So I think the earlier the earlier episodes for me, with that classic um, dynamic of the main Scooby gang and Giles and really those those classic early monsters I think they're my favorites well to, to talk about Giles for a second going back and re-watching it I'm all about Giles now yes <laughs> because we're um, older and we're the teachers now <laughs> we're the teachers now and everything that Giles oh, like oh I just I I relate to him I think he's wonderful um he's one of my favorite characters yeah he's not old at all when they, <laughs> when they make fun of him for being old I'm very offended there's reasons for that, that but I'm not going to say he... them yeah <laughs> yeah oh, I, I know I understand the reason I love that I'm, he embodies I'm, I'm that make though, it... with the, the tweed and the English culture and yeah. the cups of tea but then when he gets to uh Ripper when he when he returns yeah. to that character oh that god that was such a good side to explore to Giles again that's them turning what we see on its head and subverting our expectations and he saves the day. He kills Glory. Well, he kills Ben, who is Glory. That was a tough moment, <laughs> um, so though. That he, was a very hard moment to watch because Buffy moment. walked away and was the hero, and Giles had to kind of pick up the pieces and do the, the right thing that was horrible to watch. That was, that was an important moment, I think. But he was but he was so much the protector and the father figure yeah. that he did what she couldn't do, which was murder. That's right. Mm. Um, I'm going to make a claim, actually, for that episode being my favorite. I love that episode, the too. The episode of season five. I love it. That's the season where Buffy sacrifices herself yep. for Dawn and everything about that episode is is brilliant. Um, I remember absolutely sobbing my little heart out when I saw it <laughs> and I understood on an intellectual level that Buffy would be back but it didn't feel like it. Um, I, I thought it was just a brilliant episode and the way that they tied all of the kind of threads of that season kind of narratively into that final mm. um, episode I thought was brilliant it was just a great masterclass in, in plotting because everything came back it was yeah, fantastic. around and was yeah. and was wrapped up there was that wonderful line that Buffy says to Dawn too that I'm quite haunted by where she says something like the hardest part of being in the world is to live in it and as yeah. I, that's one of the things you might have been saying Steph where the older I get the more I see how true that is me too absolutely yeah I think that kind of encompassed it felt like the show became quite manic depressive towards the end like it went from it was like really funny and really sad um yeah. at the same time but it, it mm. kind of for me initially i i kind of stopped watching for a while because i don't think i was quite at the same space anymore I, but then i don't know what it is maybe as i've gotten older <laughs> i've gone you know what yeah it is really hard <laughs> like life it, is that's hard. right life is super depressing i'll watch Buffy. <laughs> <laughs> it's true Life is think, life is funny and that's, hard. 
Yeah. Yeah, and it, it's a show that can do both. All right, I think that's all we've got time for today, guys. Um, thank you for staying up late or being up early, or I don't even know what time it is in any place, <laughs> including here anymore. Um, thank you. Thank you, Lauren. This was a pleasure. I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it too. And thank you, Kirsten, once again, um, rejoining us after your wonderful Harry Potter session. My pleasure. Thank you for having me again. It's been really lovely. I think you're one of our, I think you're our first repeat guest. So we'll probably see you again. Um, I hope so. All right. (laughs) Thanks, guys. It was truly a pleasure talking about Buffy with you. Thank you. Um, So this has been another episode of From the Lighthouse. Michelle, um, we missed you. Please come back to us soon. And for all of our listeners out there, it would be wonderful if you could rate and review us on iTunes. Um, It really helps people to find the show. And also, it'd be great if you could provide any feedback or suggestions for future episodes. So this is Stephanie, and this is Macquarie University and From the Lighthouse signing off for two weeks. See you. Bye.